It's good to see uh, some of the old college graduates back in town, some new faces. We're glad you guys could join us uh, for church this weekend. Thank you, thank you. For those of you that were here and joined us last weekend, uh, joined us as in not here, but at our annual Cannon Beach Church Retreat, um, it was an amazing time for those of you that have missed it. Um, if you're visiting and you're just a guest here this weekend, um, every year our church goes on an annual uh, kind of church retreat to the coast, and it's generally, for me speaking, one of the highlights of the year. It's one of the few events that we have as a church that's truly for all ages, and you see, you know, everyone from the rock kids to the older parents and the youth all come together and hang out for a weekend and fellowship. Um, this weekend uh, especially was a bit um, of a special one because of the testimonies that were shared. So if you weren't here, just a quick recap of what happened. Um, our theme for the weekend was testify, and it kind of centered around the power um, and the impact that testimonies have, that your personal story with Jesus, your personal experience with Jesus, when shared with others, can have a profound impact um, on someone else's spiritual life. And it was really such a huge blessing, and I feel like it was a blessing in a sense that it was also very different last uh, this past weekend. There was the most amount of people, I believe, we've ever had at a Cannon Beach. Um, there was a newer room. There were newer members. We had a new speaker format. If you're here on Saturday in the day, Pastor Chris and I tried a new avenue for delivering the message. We had like a tag team message during that week. We tried a lot of new things. And for me personally, and maybe this can resonate with some of the people in this church uh, that have been here much longer than I have, I've had this feeling for the past month, two months, a year, that I feel like change is happening in our church. I think a lot of people that have been here for a while understand that our church is growing, there's a lot of new faces, and part of the reason Rock Kids Talk is so important is a lot of times you walk around like, I don't know who these kids are, I don't know who their parents are, and so I feel like there's this sense that you couldn't help but feel that there's change happening, things are not the same as they've always been. And I feel like the word change as a concept is kind of a loaded term. There's good and there's bad generally associated with it. Um, a time of transition. And the reason I bring this up today is, even if you're not part of a church and you don't like, I don't know that this church is changing, it's my first time here, this message really today is for anyone that feels like there is something around the corner in your life, there is a new chapter, a new era, something new that's happening in your life, and you feel a little bit uneasy about what's happening around the corner, and you feel like, I don't know, there's, there's something brand new, there's a lot of college graduates here, people that are going to be going up. I feel like something about summer being just around the corner gives this expectation and feeling of something new happening, a new school year, if you've just moved. If you feel any of those things and you're in a place in your life where change is just around the corner, and to be honest, you're not 100% positive about what's happening, you're a little nervous or little anticipating about it. Um, I'm glad you're joining us this week um, for our message, and I hope um, God has a message for you today. But before we go into the Word, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for this time and this privilege and this opportunity for us to gather together um, in person on the Sabbath as we worship and praise your name and as we sung earlier, as we're reminded of the love that you have for us, Father Lord. And really, that is the reason we are gathered here today, as we rest and we remember the love that you have for us and your faithfulness to us throughout our lives, despite who we are. Father, I ask that in this time you speak through me, despite how unworthy I may be. Use me as your vessel. Father, open the ears and the hearts of anyone listening. Soften our hearts and may your will be done on Rock Fellowship as it is done in heaven. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So before we go into the word today and go into this particular biblical passage, there's a little bit of context that needs to be explained for anyone that's been a while since you've been in Sabbath school. It's been a while since you've read through the entire Bible. But it's a quick history lesson about this overview of, of the Bible story as we know it. Um, I'm going to go back as early as 
um, King David. I feel like King David is a character in the Bible that most of us are pretty familiar with. He's famous for having killed Goliath and eventually becoming one of the kings of Israel. After King David, during his reign, after he kills Goliath, he has a struggle with the current King Saul. But once he eventually becomes king, he's a very popular king and a, and a pretty good king for the most part. And very early on in his reign, King David makes a request to God. He says, God, you know, things are going great. I'm king. You've, we flourished by obeying your command. God, I've always felt bad that I have this huge, amazing palace for myself, yet your presence is in for lack of a better word, a tent, right? They were currently in the tabernacle, and there was no big, grand vessel for the Lord's presence yet in Jerusalem. So David asked God, God, would it be all right with your permission? Could I build a palace for you? Could I build a temple for you? I have my house, and I feel like it's only right that you should have your own permanent place here. And God says, thank you, but no thank you. Um, you have killed too many people. So I'm going to ask somebody else to do that. And eventually down the line, um, he has a son by the name of Solomon. And when Solomon becomes king, he is known as kind of the wisest king in Israel. And during his reign, Israel enters this reign of like prosperity economically and politically. It's, it becomes kind of a powerhouse where politicians and leaders from other nations will come seek the wisdom of Solomon. And really, it's kind of the golden age politically and economically of Israel, despite Solomon's uh, shortcomings as a leader and as a spiritual leader. But one of the big accomplishments that Solomon has is that he builds the temple of God. What his father couldn't do, God allows Solomon to do. And so Solomon builds this magnificent, beautiful temple in Jerusalem. It's one of the most amazing things, and it's arguably the greatest thing that's built up until this point um, for God. Remember, up until this point, Israel was historically a nomadic group, and they're traveling around the wilderness. So God was, the presence of God was essentially in a tent that they deconstructed and reconstructed as they went. So this was really the first permanent home for God. And it was a beautiful temple. They outsourced a lot of materials from other nations. It came together just an architectural masterpiece. And then when they dedicate the temple, there's this really awesome moment where like the presence of God comes. And it's a really beautiful moment in Israelite history with this temple. After the reign of Solomon, and really Solomon, as, as amazing as the nation was and as prosperous as it was at the time, he had, he had his shortcomings as a leader, both spiritually and politically. And towards the end, the nation of Israel actually splits. And if you're here at Cannon Beach, you know, because of our trivia question, that it splits into two nations, the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. And from that point on, we essentially get two separate nations, the nation of Israel and Judah. They have their own kings, their own kingdoms. Um, and for the most part, there is a slew of basically unfaithfulness in Israelite history. For, for the next hundreds of years, Judah has two, maybe three faithful kings, and aside from that, it's just a bunch of kings that give in to the influences around them, and they're unfaithful to God, and things really don't work out in Israel's favor, and there's this time, and this is where you get to the big chunk of the prophets in Israelite history, and in the book of the Bible, where God essentially says, you guys need to shape up, you guys need to come back to me, stop doing all these terrible things, come back, come back, and they keep straying away from God until eventually... Both nations are conquered by enemy nations. The nation of Assyria conquers Israel, and the nation of Babylon conquers the southern nation of Judah a little bit later. And this is where we get the story of Daniel and Esther, where Daniel, although a Hebrew, is in a foreign nation, because at this point in the history of the Bible, this is when Israel and Judah have been conquered. And so he's essentially a prisoner of war. We get the story of Daniel there. We get the story of Esther. And Esther is kind of a new chapter where after the Babylonian Empire falls, the Persian Empire comes, and they conquer Babylon, and that's where we get the story of Esther. This essentially, this context is important because of this, this is where we are in the biblical narrative of today. And during this time, 
when the nation of Israel is kind of scattered there in the captives of the Persian Empire, this is known as a period, as an era of the exile, where they're not in their hometown, but there's still a nation group of, of Israelites in the Persian Empire, but they aren't home yet. And during this time, it's a really dark era of Israelite history where they're longing to go back home. We don't have our home, we want to go back. And there were prophecies made before they left that God would come back and get them. You're going to be in exile, you're going to be conquered by other nations, but I'm going to come back for you. And during this time, really roughly around the time of Esther, when the Persian Empire is in power, they allow a small group of Israelites to go back. And the task is, I want you to go back to your home country, and I want you to rebuild your life. You're free to go back home. Um, obviously, we'll keep, paying, we'll keep taxing you and stuff, but you can go back and rebuild your home. It's all the same to me. So the Persian Empire um, allows the group to go back. And this initial group is led by a man of Zerubbabel. And he goes back and he rebuilds the temple. Now, keep in mind, one of the first things, to do in, first things they do in rebuilding the temple is laying down the foundation. But again, I just want you to remember the context of what we just talked about. This first temple that was built was arguably the most beautiful building in all of Israel. It was like an architectural masterpiece. Tons of resources were poured out into this. And at this stage in Israelite history, they were just, they're fresh off from being refugees, essentially. So there aren't that many resources to go around. They're not some powerhouse and prosperous nation. Keeping that in mind, here's Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Ezra chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. This illustrates the story of what's happening. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by King David of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Step one is complete. We're one step closer to finally having our place of worship. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. And you get this really interesting, sobering moment where there are really mixed reactions from the people that are involved in this project, right? On one hand, it's amazing. Praise the Lord. We, like, we were back in our hometown. Like, we've been away from home for so long. We're one step closer to actually being home, right? It's not home without the presence of God, without the temple being built, and we've just laid down the foundation. And just as they're finishing, there are essentially two reactions. On one hand, there's a group of people that are like, praise the Lord. This is awesome. Our hard work is paying off. God is faithful. Look at this progress. And on the other hand, there are older people, probably more respected heads, uh, elders in the community that look at it, and they can't really get excited for this because for them, they remember quite vividly what the old temple looked like. And sure, it's not done yet. It's just the foundation. But you can tell. When the foundation is laid, you can tell how big it's going to be. And right off the bat, they knew this, this is not going to be the same. It's not what we had I don't know why you guys are so excited. Honestly, this is terrible. Like, do you even remember? Of course you don't. Do you remember what, how grand it was, how amazing our old temple used to be? And there's a lot of mixed reactions in this moment. And to be honest, they're both right. On one hand, 
objectively speaking, this was going to be a smaller temple. The foundation was much smaller. They had much less resources. But the other side was just as correct. They were one step closer to actually having a temple. They were one step closer to finally coming back home. And you get caught in this moment as a reader in this tension between these two perspectives. Not what it used to be. It's much smaller. But there is this underlying sense of rejoicement because, I mean, we are a little bit closer to being home. And I think whenever we face a time of change or transition, most of us can relate to this feeling, this duality of, I'm excited for what's around the corner, but also, I don't know, there's some things that I'm a little concerned about, I'm a little bit worried about, I don't know. There's this feeling of realizing that after, once I enter into this new chapter of my life, this new stage, this new place I move to, this new school I'm going to, this new relationship, there are certain things that just won't be the same. Right? There's a lot of college graduates or high school graduates here in this room. I think this year we have the, the largest number of actual seniors graduating from high school. And I imagine for a lot of you, you've had that same feeling. Right? On one hand, you're excited. Yeah, I'm ready to get out of the house. I'm ready to go to college, meet some new friends, get excited, do all these new things, have some new memories and adventures, like just get away from it all, start over. But at the same time, I imagine there's a little bit of, I don't know, did I choose the right major? Am I going to the right school? Am I going to be able to get away with all the terrible study habits that I've created so far? I don't know. And I imagine there's this sort of duality where, yes, for the most part, you might be excited, but at the same time, there's a sense of, ooh, I don't know. Or maybe further down the road, you are going to be done with school. You're graduating from college, graduating from graduate school, and you're excited, like, I'm going to join the workforce now. I'm going to start making money instead of paying someone else to teach me stuff that I don't find to be particularly relevant. And you're excited, right? i got to move out. I'm going to find my own place, get, a new, get in my own car, furnish my own place. I can make it just the way I want to. And then you do it, and you're like, dang, this costs a lot of money. There's a lot that goes into this. And I actually can't even afford the place that I want to live in. So uh, maybe it wasn't so great after all. But there is this sense of like this anticipation for what's to come in the future. Kind of at the same time, there's this duality of things are not going to be the same anymore, right? Once you're into the workforce, you can't just go back to living in a dorm and having all your meals paid for and just going to the library with your friends. There are certain things that end once you enter into a new chapter and era of your life. For me, um, in college, one of the things that I looked forward to the most, actually, was um, Sabbath. I think there's something about being a student that makes Sabbath just a little bit more special. And, you know, I was a theology major, so I was like, all right, the minute the sun goes out on Friday, I'm not going to study, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Um, And for the most part, I helped out at church, but nowhere near the extent that I do now as an actual pastor. So Sabbaths were pretty free for me. Occasionally, I lead praise preach maybe a few times a year, if that. And on Saturdays, what I loved doing, my favorite part, one of my favorite parts of Sabbath, um, was just after potluck ended. And potluck would end, and this being, um, I went to Andrews, so a little bit kind of closer to the East Coast culture of church, I would, most guys would dress up quite a bit for church. Shirt, tie, tie clip, if not like an actual suit and a jacket on top. And one of the best feelings for me on Sabbath was, Right after Pollock ended, you know, we helped cleaning up, um, we'd all head back to campus. And then it would kind of split into a few different camps. Some people would play basketball, some people would organize a hike, some people would, you know, go travel, explore somewhere. But the true faithful ones, the, theolog- the ones that knew the letter and the spirit of the law, um, would go to their rooms in the quiet, just by themselves, um, change out of their church clothes, and take a nap. And honestly, 
something about those Sabbath naps like hit so differently. Like they were just, it was just amazing. Like just getting out of those like stuffy relatively church clothes, taking your tie off and your button up and just getting to comfy clothes, jumping into bed and just knocking out was one of the best parts of Sabbath for me. I mean, worship was great and I love church and I was very involved. I really was. But I mean, like it was, it was awesome. And as I was doing it, you know, because I was a theology major, um, I knew that this would one day end, right? I, I'd always planned on going into ministry. Like I knew that was in my future. And I knew, especially towards my senior year, I was, I was only there for one semester. And I was like, I got to savor these moments, right? Anytime I'm not preaching or I'm not um, doing praise, like I got to really enjoy like this restful part of Sabbath. And then I started church and I started working at Rock and it was amazing. And then if you remember, about a year into me working here, um, we had COVID. And then church shut down and there was a, an era, a few months, especially towards the beginning where our church services looked very different. They were, we had pre-recorded sermons that were put on stream. And then if you remember, just after that, myself and Pastor Chris would sit on what looked like the stage of Between Two Ferns, and then we would discuss the sermon, and people could type in questions, and we would discuss the sermon and kind of go back and forth, pick each other's brains, and it was kind of a cool era. Um, but afterwards, right, let's say at latest, it went to like, I don't know, one, two, you just go home. And I remember that first, first day I got home, and I was like, I told Pastor, like, I can just go home? That's it? We're done? And I got to my apartment, I was like, okay then. And I, and I took a nap. But, you know, it's not the same. It's really not. I, was, I remember waking up really disgruntled. I was like, that was not the same as when I was in college. And really, in a smaller sense, for me, it was like the end of an era. It's, it's not quite the same when you do it after you've been in ministry and, and you're used to your Sabbaths being more, more full. But I think for a lot of us, and that's obviously on a much more watered-down level, there's, there's a real sense of that that happens when you enter into a new chapter of your life, as you progress through life, go through different stages. There are certain things that you just can't or don't do anymore. When you go from just a married couple to having kids, when you go from dating to getting married, you, when you go from college to grad school to getting a job, at every stage in our lives, there's a certain sense of, of loss that happens as you, as you move forward. And the question is, what do you do, and for the most part, I'd like to think most of us look forward with, you know, optimistic anticipation for the future. But the question is, what do you do when the fear of what is to come is much greater than your optimism? When you can't help but remember the past, and, and like these Israelite elders, you just can't help but weep at what you have lost. And as you look forward into the future, you're not even sure you're excited for what's around. You're more sad about what you're going to lose. I talked to someone not that long ago. Um, um, we're talking about weddings and their marriage, and, and they said they've been married for some time now, and, and they talked about how on the day of their wedding, as they saw their significant other come down, uh, they started uh, weeping. And I was like, wow, that's, that's beautiful. And, and they said, I, I cried because it felt like this person was taking me away from my family. And I was like, oh, I have never quite heard that take before. Um, wow, that's, you know, okay, that's something duly noted. Um, but I think for a lot of the Israelite elders, I imagine there was a bit of sense of that where they saw what was coming in the future. They saw the foundation of what had been laid, and they're like, I can't get excited for this. Guys, how can you really, this is so lame. This is terrible. This is nowhere near what our past glory was like. Yeah, 
You young kids would not know. You don't remember how glorious and how amazing. People will come from other countries to look and marvel at this beautiful temple. And for them, it really started to hit them um, that things were going to change for good. And the downside of what they were doing, like, yes, it's kind of a downer, but because they had so much weight in the community, actually their grumblings were quite infectious. Actually, Ellen White says this in Prophets and Kings. Um, we'll put down the screen that the murmuring and complaining and the, and, and the unfavorable comparisons made had a depressing influence on the minds of many and weakened the hands of the builders. The workmen were led to question whether they should proceed with the erection of a building that at the beginning, remember, this is very early on in the construction, nothing is actually built above the ground yet, that at the very beginning was so freely criticized and was the cause of so much lamentation. That feeling of dread, of fear, of uneasiness started to spread to even the workers, right? I imagine even the people that didn't even know what the old temple looked like, they started to question, why are we doing this? Is it that bad? Hey, is it really, is it really that much smaller? Is it really that much worse? And I imagine these feelings of doubt started to grow to the point where, is this even really something worth doing? Should we proceed with this? Should we stop while we're ahead? I mean, what should we do? And I imagine it, it put a lot of, maybe at first, panic of, well, we've made some progress, but the really respected people that know the elders of our community are saying, this is lame. Well, then what do we do now? And actually what happened was, construction kind of came to a stop. After the foundation was laid and all that momentum, it kind of slowed down, where when you continue reading in Hosea, people just started, you know what, maybe I'll just build my house first. And when you read other books of the Bible that kind of talk about the same era, it says that people stopped building the temple and were like, well, if we're not going to build this, then I might as well build an amazing home for myself. And let me start with my life first. And really, the temple started to get neglected. Because again, what they looked forward in the future was not quite so appealing for them. And for some of us, I imagine we have found ourselves in a similar place where we look into the future, we look at what's around the corner, right? What's right after summer? What's right after this next stage of my life? And, and we're filled with, with doubt. I'm not sure about this major that I've selected. I'm not sure if that's what I want to do. I'm not sure about this job. I'm not sure about this move to this new location. I'm not sure about this relationship. I'm not sure about any of this stuff. And this is essentially what the elders were feeling. And when I look at this story, I can't help but feel that, yeah, boo, the elders, way to like kill the vibe. But honestly, I feel like it's a pretty relatable place to be. I mean, can you blame them? They knew. You can't help but compare what the temple used to look like. And the question that's raised is, how do you go from that? How do you go from looking at what's coming ahead in your life, looking at the future and feeling uneasy and feeling hesitant and feeling doubtful and uncertain, how do you go from that to three chapters later in the same book, Ezra chapter 6, where we find that the temple is actually completed and that there's this huge dedication ceremony and there's joy and celebration. And as you read through, as you skim through the book of Ezra, as most of us probably do, you might have missed what happened. Well, how do you go from point A looking at this foundation, feeling terrible about it and disappointed and really kind of giving up on the project to, oh my goodness, praise the Lord, I can't believe this temple is completed, let's dedicate it, and they have this, the first Passover, and it's a really beautiful scene, and you're led to wonder, well, how do you go from point A to point B? Well, when you skim the three chapters in between, 
Um, you don't see too much. Honestly, a lot of it is basically just paperwork that's being read aloud. It's kind of slow and it's not that exciting. What you need to do is actually you need to go to a different book of the Bible and you need to go to the prophet Haggai. What Haggai tells us and what he's revealed in the book of Haggai is that God sends a message to Israel that in this state of where the temple is kind of being neglected and actually people really did start building their own homes, God tells Haggai, I want you to whip these people into shape, share this message with them. And this is the message that God gives through his servant Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once again shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house, this current temple, with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. This is the message that God gives through his servant Haggai, that despite what you see in front of you, despite the smaller foundation, despite the lack of premium materials, despite the fact that this current temple seems to be much less significant and valuable than the previous temple, what you see and feel in this moment is not an accurate assessment of what the future holds for you. I get that you look at this temple and you have so much reason to believe that it's gonna be worse. I get it, it's smaller. I get it, it's not as pretty. But I'm telling you now, this temple will be significantly greater than the glory of the previous temple. I'm telling you that, that despite what you feel, you may feel that this temple is not enough, you may feel that this temple is lesser, you may even feel that this temple is not even worth completing, but God says in fact that the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the previous temple. And history would show that in this second temple period with this smaller, not as great temple, down the road, a baby would be dedicated by the name of Jesus in this very temple. And this temple will be the classroom where Jesus at the age of 12 would interact and teach and, and question with scholars having left his mom because he was so interested in what was happening. This was the temple that Jesus would cleanse when he, when he kicked out the money changers. And this was the temple in which the curtain would split when Jesus would finally say, it is done. And in so many ways, when you read ahead and you see what the future of this temple held, you can't argue that there was much more significance and glory that happened in this temple because of what Jesus would do later, despite the fact that, yes, it was smaller and it was less pretty and less adorned because God said so. Despite what they felt, there was much more hope for this. And to be honest, I think that's what we really look forward to when we're in, this, in, in a position of doubt and uncertainty. And maybe a lot of us have done this for ourselves where we find ourselves in this place of, I don't know what I should do. And for many of you, you may have done this where let's say you're a high school student about to go into college and you feel this unease. Most of us, what we do is we find someone that we trust and that we believe and that has maybe already been in the position that we're looking forward to and we ask them for words of advice and encouragement. And I imagine that if you're a high schooler that's nervous and scared and, and uncertain, you talk to someone that's in college or someone that at least has been through college, and you ask them, hey, what was it like for you? What can I do to feel better? And they probably put your mind at ease, and they gave you advice, and they told you that it's going to be fine. And if it was someone that you trusted, that you believed, um, you probably felt significantly better after that conversation, right? Someone in an earlier stage of relationship, maybe without kids, talks to someone that has kids and say, what was it like? What are the changes? How can I prepare? And chances are, again, if this is someone you believed and trusted and thought was competent, 
once they gave you that advice, once they told you what it was gonna be like, you felt much, much better. And despite how you felt in that moment, your prospects towards the future became much, much better. And again, it's not that different to what God does in this moment with Israel. When in this moment of panic, of doubt, of uncertainty, God says, hey, I get that you're scared, I get that you're nervous, I get that you don't know what's happening, but I am telling you, in the same way that I promised your ancestors before, and the same way I've kept promises with every single generation from Abraham on, that this temple, that what you are doing now does have a purpose, that I have a plan for this temple. And actually, my plan for this temple is greater than my plan was for the previous temple, and I need you to know that. And all, all, that's the message that they needed. And once they heard that message, the temple was completed because now the Israelites knew that despite the doubt that they had, there was someone they trusted, someone they believed, someone that knew what they were talking about that gave them the assurance that there is hope for this future. There is a reason you can keep going down this path. And God, his words, his promise, became a source of hope for them and allowed them to pull themselves out of this rut. It puts things in perspective and it reminds us that what lies in our immediate future also does not dictate the rest of our lives. But to come back to the Israelites a little bit, if you, again, look at this story in the context of the whole story of the Bible, it's honestly a little bit ironic and weird that they felt hopeless at all in this moment. Because remember, the fact that they are even back in their hometown now was a prediction and a promise that God had made earlier, that you will go to exile and I will bring you back. So just the very fact that they were here rebuilding this temple meant that God had fulfilled his promise and that God had not abandoned them and God had continued to work in their lives. And really, when you look at the story of the Bible, as long as it is, anyone that's trying to read the Bible knows that it takes a while. It's a lot of words, like thousands and thousands of pages. As you read the story, the actual plot line of the Bible, what a lot of people come to realize and think about is, why is this story as long as it is? And very quickly you start to find that there's a real pattern throughout the entire story of the Bible. And it's that God says, hey, humanity, let's partner together. Let's do something great. And humanity says, awesome, let's do it. Let's bless us. Let's make this happen. And then humanity falls off and says, forgets about God, falls into apostasy, worships idols, does all these terrible things. And then they get overrun by their enemies. And they cry out to God, and God says, okay, okay, fine. Let me save you. They say, yay, we love you, God. And then it starts again. It happens like, that's essentially the entire Old Testament. And you start to wonder as you read this story, like, what is going on? And you can't help but wonder, how do they keep doing this? At first, you start to wonder, how can Israel keep on falling? How can Israel keep on making the same mistakes? And then eventually, you start to ask the question, how can God keep coming back to Israel? How can God keep saving them? The fact that they were in Babylon to begin with was because they gave up on God. They said, God, we don't care what you want to say to us anymore. We don't care that you send all these prophets. We just want to do our own thing. And they got conquered. And even in exile, God reaches out to them and brings them back. And again, even when they come back, as they're rebuilding this temple, they lose hope and faith again. And in all of this, the story, the thing that keeps the storyline of the Bible going, the reason there are more stories than just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the reason the Bible is as long as it is is because it's essentially a story of how despite the fact that Israel fails at every step of the way, 
God refuses with this crazy amount of stubbornness to ever give up on his people. That even when they reject him so blatantly, time and time again, he can't help but come back to his people. And God himself becomes the source of hope for Israel. The reason this temple had any purpose to begin with was because God said, I have a plan for this temple. I have a plan for you. The reason these Israelites felt any sense of, the reason they're even back to build that temple was because God made a promise that said, hey, you're going to go away and I promise you I'm going to come back and I'll bring you back to this hometown and we'll start all over again. And that's why they were at the place where they were. God continues to bail them out with this strong stubbornness. He refuses to abandon his people. He refuses to give up on his beloved children despite the fact that their actual situation Their actual actions and thoughts were truly hopeless. There was no hope for Israel at many times in the story, yet God continues to come through and bails them out because for Israel, their hope was not based on their circumstances. Otherwise, the story would have ended long ago. And their hope was based on the promises of God. And it's a very important part of the Bible. And that's why the story of the Bible keeps moving along. It's not about Israel's success and their wise decision. It's about God's faithfulness and his provision despite all of this. And that becomes the source of hope in the Bible. And honestly, for a lot of us as followers of Christ, that is the hope that we hold on to today. That despite that, you may look into your future and feel, I don't know. I'm not sure. If anything, I have a lot of reason to feel like what's around the corner is not going to be great. The hope is built, the hope as a follower of Jesus cannot be built on what you're looking at. In the same way that the elders looked at this temple and what they saw in front of them was not great, but what they held on to was the promise that God gave that despite what you see in front of you, despite what you feel in your heart, despite what you think in your brain, I'm telling you there is more and there are greater things to come. And in this moment, I want to take an aside and speak to anyone that has maybe been in church, in and out of church for a while, and you've heard this phrase before, right? You've sung this song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and yeah, 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 it sounds great. It sounds awesome, and it makes you feel good to know that, oh yeah, my hope is built on Jesus. But at one point, it begs the question, what does that actually mean? And I want to turn to to anyone in particular that, that feels like, okay, that's great, And I get that it's true, but I don't know if that statement necessarily applies to me. Because, you know, it's one thing for a very faithful person to say that my hope is built on Jesus. I believe in Jesus and his promises. But me personally, I'm not great with God right now. And I know that when I was at church and hearing these sermons about how God's hope, God is your hope, and God will come through, and God has a plan for you, it always felt like if I wasn't right with God, if I wasn't constantly going to church and I never missed church, if I wasn't constantly reading scripture, it felt like those promises did not necessarily apply to me, right? Oh, God is the hope of my mom. She's really faithful. She never, she devotions every day, serves the church, rock solid, no doubt. Yeah, I get that God is my mom's hope, but for me, I I can't remember the last time I spent time. You know, I'm not right with God right now, so maybe when I am right with God, then he will be my hope. But right now, I'm not in a great place spiritually. If you feel that way, and I imagine that that there are at least one or two people in this room that may feel that way, I want to remind you and respectfully disagree with you in that theology because during the span after Solomon is king and the nation of Israel splits 
and before they're, they're sent away into the exile, during those hundreds of years, Israel did some of the worst atrocities ever in the entire Bible. I'm talking like human rights violations on their own people. And despite that, despite how far they had fallen, despite how blatantly they disrespected and disobeyed God, God refused to give up on them. And I feel like for a lot of us, we forget that the majority of the Bible is God being the hope of people that don't even really believe in him or obey him. That God says, I get that you don't really trust me yet. I trust me yet. I get that you have all these doubts and I get that you're not even really obeying me, but it doesn't matter to me. I want to continue to be your hope and speak into your life. So if there's anyone in this room that feels like, you know, like I'm not, I am nervous about the future and I am nervous about this next chapter, about this change or transition I'm about to make, but I don't know that I can claim God as my hope because to be honest, I'm not great with God right now. I would respectfully disagree with that theology and let you know that if anything, this is the best time in your life to remind yourselves that despite your unfaithfulness, it's not your faith that gives you hope anyways. It's the faithfulness of Jesus that does that for you. A hope that allows us to feel a sense of peace despite uncertainty in our future because that hope is made is based on a promise made by someone that has never let us down. I want to end um, with this passage that reminds us that as Christians, that as followers of Jesus, that yes, there is this sense of what you feel right now is not necessarily indicative of what may happen in the future, but also there's an added level of assurance for people that believe in Jesus. And it's a really significant part of our theology that I don't think we think about or talk about very often. And it's the fact that while your immediate future may seem uncertain and maybe clouded and maybe shrouded in fear, the reality is that as followers of Jesus, despite what our current situation is, our eternal future is always secure. And I know, I don't know what it is about, you know, doing devotions and living in our day-to-day life on earth, that it's easy for us to forget that there is more than our life on earth. And I feel like remembering that in our daily walk can put a lot of our daily things into perspective. So I just want to read, this also happened to be like the verse of the day for today. Um, this is in Revelations chapter 21, the second to last passage of scripture. Think of this as the concluding remarks of the entire Bible. This is John speaking in a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This, this is our hope. This is our promise This is our future because this is our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you again for the promises that you've made to us and the promises that you've kept and the promises that you're in the process of keeping as we look forward to our future. Lord, I think it's it's any any Christian, any follower of you that looks into the future that feels this sense of unease, uncertainty, Lord. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of, of a God that sees time in a different space as us, Lord. And a lot of times... Um, the things that are just around the corner in our lives can be the biggest obstacle for us. 
Father, I ask that in those moments, for anyone here that's looking forward to a time of change, of transition, of, of growth, of maturity, taking a next step, entering a new chapter or era in their lives, they may feel a little sense of unease, they may see a small temple foundation and feel a sense of hopelessness and dread and, and what the point of all of this may be. Lord, I ask that in those moments, Father, you remind us that our hope is based on more than what we see in front of us. Our hope is based more on our circumstances. Our hope is based more than what we feel. That as followers of you, our hope is based on your promises and your character. That is your faithfulness and your promises and your character that gives us hope and a future. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen.